This is the Scott Radley Show podcast. It is Friday and it is the Scott Radley Show and I appreciate you being here tonight. Thanks for joining us this evening. We are going to give you two hours of scintillating radio before sending you off to your weekend. The weather's good for this weekend. All is Everything's happy. The Olympics are starting. There is no reason for you to do anything but pull up beside your radio for the next two hours. Get a beverage if you are so inclined to that, or just a popsicle, whatever. It's hot out there. And sit and listen. We are going to reassemble the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio in just a minute and talk about a bunch of things, some serious, some less serious, but we will keep you entertained and hopefully a little informed for the next two hours. I'll tell you about that in just a second. First up tonight, uh, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show is brought to you commercial-free exclusively by fox40shop.com. For sport and for safety, it has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code RADLEY at checkout to get 25% off your order. Your quiz question this evening, just before we get going tonight. This is, last night was a tough one. We, we, we gave you a head scratcher last night, and I got to tell you, I was more than impressed with the number of people who were able to come up with it, because I was thinking we were going to get five or six. I think there were 25 or so of you who were able to come up with it. Tonight, I think... I would expect the number to be much higher tonight. This is an easier question, I think. Anyway, 33 years ago this week, it was actually 33 years ago yesterday, but 33 years ago this week, a Hall of Fame baseball player for the New York Yankees threw a ball at Exhibition Stadium that brained a seagull that led to an international incident. He ended up being charged by Metropolitan Toronto Police for killing the seagull. It became a joke all over North America, except, of course, in Toronto, where killing a seagull was a serious, serious crime, apparently. Anyway, your quiz question tonight, very simply, who was that baseball player? Who was the player for the New York Yankees who killed a seagull at Exhibition Stadium 33 years ago this week, leading to charges, believe it or not? 905-645-3221-STAR-9900. That's your quiz question for this evening. Jacob is pinch hitting for Luke tonight. So give Jacob a call. Welcome Jacob back. Jacob was here ages ago. He's years he was, and years it, ago. It, it's been a long time, but Jacob is back taking a guest turn behind the operator mic. So call Jacob, give him your guess, give him your name. We'll get to all the answers and tell you the right answer at the end of the show. But let's get on to, as I say, what we like to call the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio this evening. Two veterans. Two veterans in the seats tonight, so you know what, when I say it's the brightest panel, I can say it with absolute confidence because they have proven it time and time again. And by the way, if you're calling in for the quiz question and the phone is ringing, let it ring. we got a bunch of lines lit up, so Jacob will get to you as quickly as he can. But back to the panel. First up, to my right, ladies first this evening, Terry Pekoski from the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for doing this. Such a gentleman. Thanks, Scott. We always try to to do that, although some people would probably say that that is now uh, sexist or um, you know chauvinistic that I would say ladies first. But now you're going to be in trouble. Either way. Not for me. I'll take it. Either way, you're in trouble, right? If you hold the door, yeah. you're a chauvinist. Yep. If you don't hold the door, you're a jerk. So, you know, I'll go with a chauvinist, I guess, if I have to, if it means holding the door or saying ladies first. Beside her. A guy who just got back, and we're going to talk about this a little later in the show, but just got back from San Antonio, Texas, with arguably maybe the world's biggest trophy, the Gold Whistle Award from the National Association of Sports Officials, the highest honor for, honestly, the highest honor for a sports official in at least North America, if not the world, Ron Foxcroft. 
Thanks for coming Great in. Great to be here, Scott. It's definitely the heaviest. We had to ship at home by Fluke Logistics. You really did. You couldn't take <laughs> it as a carry-on? No, I couldn't. I couldn't lift it. Scott, I know you could lift it 100 times over your head. I couldn't lift it and hold it for 10 seconds, so we sent it home by a Fluke truck. It is, uh, it's probably a very good thing, then, that it is not a life-size whistle. Imagine if whistles were that heavy and you to run around with that all the time. Every every official would be in great shape. I'm wondering. No fat and, officials. And, you know, how Clayton Anderson even took it to outer space. you got to clarify that because I don't know how you can blow a whistle in outer space. Well, we'll talk about that well, later. Clayton okay. Anderson, if you were listening last night, uh, astronaut NASA astronaut who spent 152 days on the International Space uh, Station, and he took that uh, that whistle up to space. We are going to talk a little bit about that award and about Clayton Anderson a little yeah. later in the show. We're going to get to that. But before we get to that today, obviously the news today, the thing that's going on today, the Olympics are starting. The first piece of breaking news that came out of Rio today, I want to read you a tweet that was uh, fired off about an hour ago. Uh, this is from a, a reporter from Britain who was catching up on something over there, hearing that an Olympic kayaker may have capsized after hitting a submerged sofa. (laughs) (laughs) Story of the day and possibly of the week, if true. This is your first bit of news, that the kayakers who are training in the feces-infested waters of Guadalajara Bay, uh, he now has sunk his kayak from hitting a submerged sofa. Terry, again, we'll go to you first on this one. What what do you expect from these Olympics? We have heard so much leading up to this. What do you expect? Hopefully not more of this. Um, Can you imagine if this had happened in a race? Uh, no, I can't. <laughs> I mean, and, and that, that's a, a great question, right? What do, you, what do you do? Like, how are how are they going to deal with these issues as they come up? Because as much as I would like to think that this is the only time something like this is going to happen, I'm afraid it's not. Well, there was a picture that was put on... Um, SportsIllustrated.com today, posted by an athlete, I'm not sure which country, in the athlete's village, in their room, showing a cascading waterfall coming through the ceiling from the floor above them. Uh, Ron, we have heard, honestly, I mean, we don't want to be dumping on this, but we've heard nothing but bad news, honestly, about the preparations, about everything we're expecting from the Olympics. You, you've been there. You've been to an Olympics. What, this one, see, it feels like it is different. It feels like there's a lot more of a daunting, negative flavor about this going in. I think, and, and Terry will agree with me, it's bad news times 10, because I was there back in the Stone Ages, back in 1976, and, and there wasn't the media, social, and otherwise coverage back then. And In fact, the only thing that was available was television, traditional television, traditional radio, and print media. Now there is everything, every form of media, every form of social and otherwise media. Nothing sacred. There's n- there's no secrets. Nothing is sacred. So when when a kayaker hits a sofa, you Which can be sure ridiculous. that millions of people are going to hear that. So it's magnified, Terry, times ten because there's just more media available today. It is, and it's. I mean, everyone is sort of a journalist these days too. You know, with. Twitter and with Facebook, right. and it doesn't take the press to be there to see it. Anyone who's just a member of the general public standing around and, and watches that happen, they're going to write about it. That concerns me because there's professional media people, Scott, like yourself and, and, and Terry at, at the newspaper. But, you know, you can be sitting in the basement of your mother's house and put out a social media blog and some people read it like you're a professional journalist expert. And some of them are great. 
Some of them are terrific. Others are not so terrific because they're not trained. They're, they're not trained to be professional media people. And, and I, I use the adjective professional. And, and sometimes they put out uh, garbage that people actually hear it, listen, and believe it. Now, in this case, I mean, I, I think the interesting thing is, so that tweet, I mean, came from a journalist. We have tons of photos, I mean, that are coming through the wires of, you know, garbage and all sorts of other things in this dead water. Bodies. and Dead bodies. I didn't want to go there, but... No, but we, the spec ran. We had a picture on the front a, page yeah. of the sports section about two weeks ago of a dead body floating in this harbor where the boating is going to be. And you know what? What would it look like in Hamilton Harbor? If somebody reported there was a dead body floating there, there would be 15 police boats. Everybody would be, this body is just, oh, it's a body. Another yeah. body. Yeah. And if half of these stories are true, it's, it's very sad. And I'll tell you why. These athletes dedicate their entire life. These athletes' parents dedicate their life and, in many cases, their savings. Having been to the Olympics, I know the life sacrifice that athletes make to get there. And this is very, very sad because really the reporting could be and should be about their achievement. Everybody that made it to the Olympics has achieved something in their life, probably will never achieve, make that greatest achievement again. And that's what really should be reported. And, and I think we're kind of stealing away the fame and the sacrifice of these athletes to get other pieces of news that maybe uh, people want to hear about. Well, I really believe, Terry, that, and I think Ron's absolutely right, but I really believe that as the games go along, and I said this on Bill Kelly's show today, when the games start going, when Canada and the other countries start participating, if Canada starts doing well, all these other stories fade into the background. But if Canada's athletes don't live up to expectations. If this becomes a difficult Olympics medal-wise, these stories, we're going to hear a lot more of them. It's, it's all based on our results. I think so, but that, but that goes for any country, right? I mean, it's, it, of course, it's always results-driven, and people are always going to look for a reason as to why you're achieving or not achieving, right? Um, what I'm curious about is sort of the psychology of it for our athletes. So if you know one of your fellow competitors has just crashed into a sofa during his <laughs> race today, I mean, psychology is such a big part of, you know, an athlete's performance. How how do you manage that with all of this other stuff going on? Are they reading these media reports? Are they And, and how is that affecting them? And how is that translating into their ultimate performance. And another big area, Ron, could be that if you, you're you in the athlete's village, it's a it's an enclosed environment. If you start getting, we've heard all about the water and everything, if you have a whole bunch of athletes who start showing up sick, oh, yeah. they, they're not going to be, I mean, not necessarily with Zika, just by waterborne things, you're not going to be able to escape the fact that all these people are in the room just, you know, dying a slow death. Not really, but you know what I mean. So it, yeah. if, if things go really well, we're not going to hear all these stories for very long. No, we're not. But uh, if things go south... Right. You brought out the Athletes' Village, and one thing, having uh, performed in the Olympics, I worked several games, one thing that's very important is your diet and your sleep. That's very, very important for your high level of performance that you expect from yourself. The one thing, though, about Canadians, you may agree with me, we don't make excuses. 
I don't think if we have poor performance that our athletes, who are very proud, one thing about Canadians, they are a very proud bunch, and I don't think they'll make excuses about the facilities and so on and about the hardships. I, I would expect the Canadian athletes, because of our upbringing, that they'll say, listen, um, I was beaten by a better athlete. How much does it suck, though, if you're beaten by something that's totally out of your control? I mean, if you're if you're beaten by... If you're sick because of the water or you, you know, there's some defect with the course yeah. that you're training or on. If or if you don't get your sleep because of something. Yeah. Or yeah. it's like playing injured. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. the same thing. If you're sick and um, having traveled around the world and eaten in some places <laughs> and, and actually, uh, as you know, Scott, uh, I have colitis. And, and the first thing I did when I went around the world was scope out where the washrooms are. So it's just like if, you know, if you're sick, you're injured. It's exactly the same thing, and you can't perform at the high level. We are going to be talking about, <coughs> pardon me, we're going to be talking about the athletes, of course, for the next two weeks, but how do you think our expectations of our athletes have changed since the lead-up to Vancouver when we started the Own the Podium and we've, we had the success in Vancouver and then we did reasonably well in London and we did very well in Sochi? I, I, I really believe that our expectations have changed dramatically. We now expect our athletes to win rather than just go and try their best. You agree? I, I agree, but I, I do think there's a distinction between the summer games and the winter games. And I think the expectations are always, always going to be higher on our winter athletes. Um, I don't know. I, it, what do you think, Ron? Couldn't agree with you more. Um, we're a hockey country. <laughs> we're a winter sport country. But the big difference is... Uh, since only the podium, we have achieved very, very well at the track and field, at basketball, all these Canadians that go to the NBA. Our ladies' basketball team, um, personally, my expectation, they're going to medal. So in the last 10 years since Own the Podium, since we've made an investment in our amazing summer athletes, um, I think our Canadian expectations are extremely high. You well, could say the same thing for women's soccer. Yeah, too. I was going to oh, say that yeah. exact same thing. There are certain, maybe not across the board, like in winter sports. At the Winter Olympics, we kind of expect surprise medals to be popping out of all over the place that we don't we even do. know. Yeah. And the summer games, I don't think we expect that, but we do have teams or athletes that we do think should be there. And I think you're right about women's basketball. Women's soccer is another one after what happened in London. I think now people expect a medal, at least from Andre DeGrasse, the sprinter. Um, there's a few other ones from uh, uh, Adam Vancouverden or uh, or Mark Oldershaw. So th- those are the ones now that I look at and I think even then, like when we had our swimmers years ago with Bauman and Victor Davis, now, it was nice that they won, but I still don't think we expected them to win. There are no. people now that I really believe we expect they're going to win. And if they don't, it's not fair to them, but I think that really is going to define the Olympics. Do our do our best or at least the people we perceive as our best perform and if they do it's a great olympics if they don't what what do we think at the end of this is it a failure or is it just oh it's a blip i think it depends on how it goes and this you know relates back to what we were just talking about i mean if everything works out and runs smoothly and they still don't perform then it's a different conversation than if you know these games are a total gong show so I think it's sort of a, a wait-and-see proposition. Ron, would you, go ahead. Having uh, had dialogue with some of our 
athletes, everyone that I've had dialogue with or that we've communicated with at the company is they are there to medal. They expect to medal. You have to. Yeah. That has to be your mindset. Yeah. And and they they don't sacrifice their entire life and their parents' entire life savings not to go there and medal. So I think our expectations right now are extremely high. Also, too, you know, we've had a lot of communication about all the trials and tribulations and so on. Now, now the events start. And television does a very good job. There's no question. We got some seasoned people over there from Canada and the United States. And let's hope that the emphasis now is on the athletes and the event and not all the extracurricular activities because it was almost like we had we needed something to report on but now because there was no events going on it starts now and of course look at our women's soccer team they won they beat australia that's huge mm-hmm. and i like that that uh, everything positive about our athletes is good it is. Uh, you're absolutely right about the the fact that it's starting. All the reporters there have had nothing to do for except except. I'm not. I'm not saying they're making up stories. I don't mean that. But they have no. had time to walk around and take in the sites and see what's going on, and that's what they've been reporting on. And they have, I believe, accurately presented the story of what's going on in Rio. There are problems. Right. There's a huge political crisis there, a huge economic crisis. There are facilities that aren't finished. You've got Zika. You've got all these things. They're sure. all legitimate stories. But they're all there now to cover sports, and once it gets going, you're right, Ron. They're now all going to yeah. be at the venues right. writing about sports. That's right. Worried about getting the bus back to their hotel. Well, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I hear, I, I'd like to see, we probably won't, won't hear about this, but the transportation, two things about Olympics, transportation and food. Uh, of course, accommodations. But these are two things that normally mess up. Atlanta, I'm told, had the worst transportation ever. There have been a few other places. I can't remember the last one. Was it London? I can't remember if London was good or bad. I remember always hearing. But already there are, again, tweets coming out saying they're working out the glitches here. There are some glitches. We're not really getting to where we're supposed to be going yet. But, again, once the sport starts, especially if Canada does well, especially if we get off to a good start, and the women's soccer was a great start. If we get off to a good start, I really believe... All this stuff goes away and we just hear about sports. Can I tell a real quick story about transportation? I was working the Pan Am Games in Puerto Rico and Ray Jones, the infamous Ray Jones, trainer of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, was the trainer of the Canadian Olympic basketball team. We went to the Roberto Clemente Auditorium. Canada was playing somebody and he turned to me and he said, I forgot the water bottles. Now, back in those days, you all drank out of the same water bottle. He said, go back to the hotel and get the water bottles. Well, everyone in San Juan, Puerto Rico speaks Spanish. My game was the next game following the Canada game. So I diligently, like a good Canadian, got on the bus (laughs) to go back to my hotel to get the water bottles for Team Canada and got lost. (laughs) Did you make it back? No. Couldn't couldn't speak (laughs) Spanish. And, of course, once you're on a bus... I had no idea it would take three connections to get back to the hotel. So I got hopelessly lost, showed up late for my assignment. I hate Jonesy for that. <laughs> they they delayed the game, and they, I can just hear them now. That stupid Canadian got lost en route to referee a Pan Am basketball game. 
You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. All right, so let's move along here, Ron. Um, Ron Foxcroft, Terry Pekoski in studio for the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio. Changing tack a little bit here, changing course, changing topic a little. Something a little more serious, but something that I find really interesting. I'm still, I'll be honest with you, I'm still trying to decide exactly what I think about this. Because I think I think something, but I want to hear your thoughts. It'll probably actually help me sort this out. There has been discussion in the last couple of weeks that the government of Canada, rather than selecting Supreme Court justices now, as it always has done by finding judges or lawyers that have existed out in the country and going and digging them up and appointing them to the Supreme Court, it wants lawyers and judges who are interested in being on the Supreme Court to apply as if they were applying for any other job. Send in your resume, send in your phone number, we'll contact you and maybe maybe we'll choose you to be on the Supreme Court. What do you think about this? I mean, on the one hand, it sounds very open and very transparent. And on the other hand, I look at it and I think, is this... Is the idea behind this really to find the best legal and judicial minds or to find the best diverse group of people that we can to represent all corners of the country, whether or not they're the best lawyers and judges? And is this a visual thing or is this a practical thing? But I don't know. What do you think, Terry? That no, that didn't cross my mind when you were explaining that, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, what did is, I mean... The benefit of this is that you might get applications from people your search might not find. Uh, so that's a good thing. Um, however, I think that often the people who are best at certain jobs, and I sometimes think this way about government too, are the people who um, don't seek it out on their own. Um, so I, I, I have So a always, great lawyer yeah. who's making a, a very nice living may say, why would I want to be a Supreme Court judge? I can make a lot more money just staying in practice. Exactly. Exactly. So some of the best people are the ones that are just, you know, dedicated to their craft and doing it. And, um, and it would be a shame to see those people not considered for it if they're going to be the best at it. That's Wait, my view. Ron, what do you think? No right and wrong to this. And I think that we would all be, and we're not naive to believe that the the current system has political connotations. Sure. Of course it does. Of course it does. uh, That is a very serious problem. Terry hit the nail on the head uh, because we we have a company and uh, we apply, we, we put an application out to fill a position. And many times we don't get an application from a person that is is qualified. And you have to go out in that magic word, recruit, recruit. So I, I really believe there's there's no right and there's no wrong here. And sometimes I think we have to be in a position to go after the people that we know are the most qualified but that's the right or wrong part, Ron. That's, that's right. That's exactly the right or wrong part. That, To me, the idea behind this, and I agree with you, there are parts of this that sound very enticing. Right. Let's see who's out there. Let's see if there's someone who would be a great Supreme Court justice. Yeah. But the difficult part, that we, if there's going to be a wrong, it's when you turn this into a political game then, and you say, we must have an Aboriginal woman, we must have an African-American man, we must have a... Uh, a gay man or woman we must basically you're going to cover every try and get a, a little bit of everything where to me if you're on the supreme court idea this this shouldn't be a political thing it should be who are the best interpreters of the law the law is the law right 
Let's wow. go out and find the best people, no matter who they are. It could be all women. It could be all men. If you can find the best group, that's who you want. And if this does that, great. You nailed it. I don't think there should be quotas. Um, I'm a great believer in diverse, diverse hiring. But I'm also a great, great believer in most talented and most qualified, regardless of race, color, creed, man, woman. And that's important. I, I, I think that, you know, the one thing they don't have in in government, they don't have the flexibility that we have in the private sector. We can go out and find in the private sector the most qualified person for that position that we wish to hold. And if that means we have to uh, call for an application and we get 2,000 applications, then it's on us to do the proper due diligence and reference checks. The government, the, they need to follow the manual because they're very transparent. So I, I want to defend the government here. I, I really think that the government are put at a disadvantage because they have to follow a 38-page manual on how they fill a judicial position. So, Scott, your dad was a judge. Yep. Well, I'd love to hear what judges think of this. I'd love to hear what lawyers think of this because Terry and I are neither and I'm not going to profess to be an expert. But I, I, I think that this will never happen. You'll never untie the restrictions that the government is put under because they have to, uh, they have to occupy and they have to do this and perform this under a manual, under transparency, and they don't have the freedom that we have. In my company, I can go out there and advertise in 140 countries to fill a position can go out and also recruit somebody and I can offer a little, you know, extra, a little bonus if we find the person that can't miss. But by the same token, the responsibility comes on us to do the due diligence and reference check. And I, I think it is a very different sort of position that you're trying to fill, too. I mean, it's not just like filling a middle management position. No. It's, it is so grounded and rooted in ethics. And each individual person on that panel has a, a very different way of viewing the world. And and I think that's that's a huge it is. part of it, right? So how how do you balance that with that sort of application process? Well, it's very difficult because, and again, Ron makes a very good point. If you, let's say you take all these applications in and you're not thinking, you're thinking, you know what though? Uh, person X is still out there. We wanted him or her to apply because they would be great for this. But if you've made a new policy that says we're only going to be doing this, like the, the, the way we're finding this is by application, that we can't recruit, well, then you've got a problem. But and then if yeah. you say, but we can recruit, then people are going to say, well, then what's the whole point? You're just, yeah, it's why just am a, I wasting my it's, time? It's shenanigans. It's just, it's political showmanship to say yeah. apply. It's like trying to hire an advanced referee. Like, I mean, they don't build them, they train them. So you're getting a, a somebody, uh, I, I, you have to be a lawyer to become a judge, so you're getting a lawyer that's extremely skilled at what they do. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be extremely skilled at uh, a judicial position. The other thing, and, and to defend the government, <laughs> again, their hands are tied because it takes a pay scale. And, and, you know, in our business, if we recruit somebody and they come to us and say, the job pays three, three weeks vacation a year, uh, I want four to come, and that's the right person. We're going to give them four. 
Can't do that in the government. And if the job pays a certain pay scale, that that's the scale, that's it. So the, the government's very tied. Uh, there's no right and wrong. Well, the current situation, you can make all kinds of arguments against the current situation. Sure. About just going out and finding someone, and you can right. find someone who fits with your political views. Yeah. And right. So th- I, we're not arguing that what is there now is a perfect situation either. The other concern, though, I have about this, we have seen, and I'm trying to think of some of the names in the, in my lifetime that I remember, Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas and on and on. The way that the American Supreme Court justices are chosen end up becoming a political fiasco. They become hearings and automatically. And fundraising. Yeah. If you are a Democrat, you're always going to be against the Republican candidate for Supreme Court and vice versa. Do we want to bring, because that's what will happen here. If it's now a very open thing where you're going to apply and Terry has applied to be a Supreme Court justice, you're going to have to go in front of a committee of some kind and argue for your position and does that not do we then not in Canada create the same somewhat ridiculous circus like atmosphere of choosing judges rather than again just based on your ability as a litigator or as a justice that that to me is the is the other concern but is it done right now just on your ability I mean is or because I there are political motivations already right uh, again that's a very valid point we the, the difference is I suppose is it better to do it the way we do it, or is it better to turn it into a circus? Which I really believe it would become. It will become more Americanized if you do it this way. Is that worse? I don't know. I think at least it would be public, the process. It would be public. Your justices on the Supreme Court would become probably household names, unlike what they are now. Yeah. Can you name a single justice on the Supreme Court of Canada? No. Oh, I can't. No, I bet you can name some on the American Supreme Court, though. Yeah, because they're on TV all the time. And because they have the hearings and they go through the whole process. So, Mm -hmm. again, do do we want to, maybe we do, do we want to turn our Supreme Court into a more famous, more powerful, more well-known entity, or do we like them sort of churning away in the background? Again, it's, you know what, all these things, I'm not entirely sure I know the answer. I'm not even entirely sure I have a, strong position on it because there's pros and cons as ron says in both yeah Yeah. there's no right answer and you know my um wealthy lawyer friends who make a lot of money had tell me the system right now in canada is pretty good it's not perfect but it's a pretty good system so we have to be very careful you know scott you could drive these ratings right through the roof of this studio oh please if, tell me if, how if you put a couple of uh, my friends high priced lawyers in this room and debate this issue uh, i would love to listen to that show as this continues on we probably as this discussion continues on cuz this is not going to be decided soon you know yeah. we probably will do exactly that because it is it would be interesting to hear but I, terry had a, had an, and just before we go to break there are a lot of these guys, and you've just mentioned the high price, who would not be able to afford the pay cut no. to do this. Yeah. No. And they might be, and I'm not saying necessarily Hamilton lawyers, could be, but they may be the best person to be on this Supreme Court, and they look at it and go... That's a pay cut. Yeah, it's Why a pay cut. Why would I want to? Yeah. I, I run my own firm right now. I call all the shots. I don't have to deal with the public criticism all the yeah. time. Why would I want to do this? That's an issue. It's an issue anywhere, I would think. It is. But especially in this. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Brightest panel on Hamilton Radio is back, reassembled. A few minutes, 20 minutes left before we send you off to your weekend. 
I want to bring up a topic that I discussed earlier this week with an architect, with the head of the Hamilton Burlington Society of Architects. And it revolves around a column that Paul Burton, the editor-in-chief of The Spectator, wrote this week about architecture in Hamilton. And, and two points. One was we have so much development that's going on now in the city that we need to have some attractive architecture. We need to make sure that when these buildings go up, they are something that we want to look at, not just necessarily a just a box that gets dropped somewhere. But the other point, and what I want to ask you about, the other point which I find very interesting does Hamilton right now, Ron, do you think have a signature building, a structure, a building? Is there something when you think of Hamilton that comes to mind as the, for lack of a better word, the face of the skyline, the face of the city? Or do I, we need something like that? Well, there's there's one that doesn't get any credit. Uh, the, the refurbishment of the Lister block. Yep amazing. Uh, Lyona took that on and, uh, you know, they they uh, uh, kept the facade, they kept the history and so on. And that is very hard to do. It would have been a lot easier, as you know, it's a lot easier just to demolish and rebuild. But I, I think that it hasn't got the credit that it deserves. It's a beautiful building. You go inside and it's been completely restored I love it. Now, you know, the balance is, and the historical society and the developers, there's a fine line there. Uh, you know, when does it become impractical to restore uh, a historic building? I'm not an expert on that. Can't tell you that. But they, whatever they did with the Lister block, they nailed it. And you know what? Speaking of Leuna, Leuna Station is another beautiful one that was redone and that's, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. that is fantastic. But is it, is there a place, if, if you were, <clears throat> if you look at the Toronto skyline, CN Tower is the signature building. There's other ones. There's, there's the Roger Center and stuff. Chicago has the Sears Tower. New York has Empire State Building. has a million of them. Is there something, Terry, when you look at Hamilton? I mean, is it the Burlington Skyway, the, the bridge? Is it Tim Hortons Field? Is there something or... or would we love in this city to have someone come forward and say, I'm going to build something? Like we talked about when I was talking to the architect in Mississauga on the side of the highway. They call them the Maryland Monroe Towers. The, yeah. Would we love, do we need something like that? Do we want something like that? Or, or do we have something like that already? I, I don't know. And I, I'm, I think I'm pretty objective about it because I've only been in Hamilton for a few years. So I came in not really knowing any of the buildings and... I don't think there's really one that stands out to me over and above the others other than maybe the cathedral because that's one of the things you see when you're driving down yep. the highway, right? Um, but that's just, you know, a product of its location. Would um, it help? Would it help our city? In any way, does it aesthetically or to to brand our city or anything, would it help to have something like that? I think anything that could maybe take attention away from the skyline that is sort of the the steel mills, which is still unfortunately, you know, really associated with Hamilton, and it's because it's what right. people see when they drive by. Scott, I'm a lifer, and there's there's a couple of things I'm very proud about. The RBG, the Royal Botanical Gardens, is world famous. Now, there's been a tremendous refurbishment of the Royal Botanical Gardens. I think that is one of the greatest refurbishments in the history of Hamilton. I think it's world class. We are going to attract visitors, especially with the Canadian dollar being as low as it is. And I don't want to say that's the reason, but I notice now bus tours after bus tours, 
visitors that are coming in. They're eating in our restaurants. They're staying in our hotel. One of the greatest refurbishments in the history of Hamilton is the Royal Botanical Gardens. They tell me it's better than butchered gardens out in Vancouver. The second thing, and Scott, I'm very biased being an Argyle, a beautiful structure that needs to be refurbished and it's owned by the federal government is the armories on James Street. This is where we train our most beloved citizens our soldiers that are being trained to defend our country. And I think that uh, we need a complete refurbishment. Uh, we need to keep it just like we did the Lister block, that the armories is an amazing structure utilized for something that we have to be and should be and will be and are be very proud of. Our soldiers that are defending us are being trained in that, in, in, in that building, in that structure. It's owned by the feds. Let's get it refurbished. I don't want to see it torn down. I don't want to see condos going in there. I think it's great with the revitalization of downtown and James Street. So there's two things. There's probably more, and we need the historical society in here. RBG, world famous. Let's let's be proud of it. The armories. For the right reason, let's refurbish and it. And there are, and, you, and you're not wrong with any of those, there are a lot of these places. You talked about the Lister Block, Tim Hortons Field, you, the, the, the yep. gardens, all these different places. And they're all magnificent in their own way. They all have, they all very aesthetically appealing. They're things you want to look at. But none of them, if there is a knock, I guess, none of them would rise above the skyline. None of them are obviously visual unless you are there, right? I mean, you, you yeah. don't see Leunis, the, the Leuna building or the Lister Block unless you are there it does so and i come to that again most of the most of the world renowned most of the cities that have a building that signifies or is signature of that city is something that stands out immediately that you see from everywhere would that be useful in hamilton or is that completely unnecessary in this city i think it would because i i, I the, yeah it would. I honestly believe that the defining element of our skyline is, as I said, I mean, it, it really it's is U.S. steel, there. and it is DeFasco right now. And until there's something else to draw your eye away from that, that's still going to be the first thing that people see when they're driving down the QEW on their way to the city. It does. It, it creates a memory. The arc in St. Louis. Exactly. <laughs> it's a concrete art. Arc. Yeah. People go to St. Louis because they advertise. The other thing, too, uh, we need some outrageous marketing. Uh, you know, uh, just normal, inflexible, conservative marketing. We need outrageous marketing. And let's let's get out there and, and market our city, market the RBG, market these structures. Like, there's a lot of people right within Hamilton that haven't seen the Lister Block. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely true. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Back with The Scott Radley Show, Terry Pekoski, Ron Foxcroft in studio. And I, I wanted to take a few minutes before we were done tonight and before we sent you on your way to chat about this, um, this event, this award that Ron got on Tuesday? Tuesday. Tuesday night down in San Antonio, the Gold Whistle Award, which was the highest honor you can get as an official in... North American sports, and first of all, congrats. I mean, first of all, we're done two hours, but congratulations for Thank that you. because it. I mean, it really is a. When you look at some of the names of guys who have got it before, 
Um, one of them, one of them that always stands out to me, Mills Lane, the boxing oh. official who did like every heavyweight, every championship bite uh, fight yeah. for bite. I think he did. No, he, he Tyson Hollyfield. He didn't do the bite fight, did he? Yes, he did. Did he do that one? Yes, he All did. All right, well, there you go. It was a good yeah. Freudian slip then. Yeah. But uh, no, what a uh, what a remarkable thing yeah. to get. And it's, you had, and I want to get this, Jacob. Do you have this clip ready? We had Clayton. Anderson. Uh, Anderson. Astronaut in last night. If you were listening last night, he was on the space shuttle. He went up to the International Space Station. He took up a Fox 40 whistle, for which Ron, of course, invented and is famous for. Uh, here is what Clayton Anderson said about the Fox 40 whistle in space. When you blow a Fox 40 whistle in space, does it sound the same? Yeah, it does, actually. The, the problem was there's actually video of me blowing uh, the Fox 40 whistle in space because I was doing a video clip for another referee convention in Texas. And so I had my referee shirt on that I flew into space. I had my Fox 40 in hand, and I keyed the microphone, and I gave a foul call signal, and I blew the whistle. The problem was the whistle's frequency is so special that the microphone I was blowing it into could not pick up the right frequency. So it basically sounded like me squeezing a duck. Yeah, sounds like a uh, sounds like he was squeezing a duck. I, I, how do you? You're gonna have to work on revamping the Fox 40 to um, to go to space. Yeah, to yeah. Be able to go to space and then yeah. to use it there in case uh, that's ever needed. I said to Clayton, I would like to hitch on his next ride and go to the International Space no Station, but it would be for 152 days. But uh, it was terrific. Uh, you know, my friends uh, spent the week uh, the the weekend watching me in a state of shock, watching me unravel, uh, watching me be speechless. But, you know, this was very, very important to me for my family, for Marie and my kids, and for sharing this award with the Hamilton basketball referees. I had the greatest surprise, Scott. I had no idea, but a group of my friends had schemed to go down there, not tell me, and surprise me in uh, San Antonio. Paul Johnson, the president of the Hamilton Basketball Referees Board, Colleen Mulholland from the Burlington Foundation, Nancy DiGregorio, former retired uh, chair of the Police Services Board, Councillor Ferguson, the mayor of Burlington, Rick Goldring, and Philomena Tassi, who pulled every string in the book to get a video from Justin Trudeau. And, I, you know, um, when they played that video... With or without a shirt? Uh, he had a beautiful <laughs> shirt on. He had a shirt and tie. He was in the Parliament buildings. And um, he said something that really surprised me. He said, I remember the Fox 40 from my white water rafting days. <laughs> and, you know, we're, we're big in, in marine. So it was great to have the prime minister of the country down there in America. And, you know, in the United States, you know they do it big and beautiful, and they really did it big and beautiful. But it was so great to share this with my friends and my family. And believe me, um, I was told about this in January. I've never got over the shock. Hmm. Probably well, never will. Let me tell people some of the other names, by the way. I mentioned Mills Lane. Yes. But, and I'm not going to give them all here because a lot of them, I mean, not every one of them is going to be familiar to everybody, but Terry Gregson, NHL referee, uh, is on the list of having received it. Mills Lane, I said. Uh, Marcy Weston, uh, the first NCAA female referee, yeah. basketball, I think. And, and coordinator, just and an amazing person. Uh, NFL's Jerry Mark Bright. 
Uh, who else have we got here that people would know? Uh, Paul Stewart from the NHL, NHL referee. Derwood Merrill, uh, Major League Baseball umpire. Jim Tunney. Jim Tunney, Ed Hightower, Ron Asseltine from the NHL. Steve Palermo, the um, the baseball umpire. Was Steve Palermo, uh, who ended up, he got shot he in got the spinal shot. column and got paralyzed. Was he not the uh, guy that Robbie Alomar spat at? Yes. yes. So right in the middle of that one. Right. Now, he's paralyzed. What happened? After a ball game, he went into a variety store and witnessed a robbery. Right. And the person robbing the variety store shot him, and he's paralyzed. Yeah, no, the, the list is uh, is very long, and uh, and now at the top of it, Ron Foxcroft. I mean, it, you know what? Listen, I know you've won a lot of things. I know you've earned a lot of awards, and you've had a lot of plaques, and gone to a lot of rubber chicken dinners, and done all those kind of things. But this, this has got to be pretty close to the top of the list. Well, every award is very special, Scott. Uh, I, I want you to know that. But this was very special to me because Marie and my family and my friends were there. And the other Canadian to win the Gold Whistle Award introduced me, Terry Gregson, who's very classy from hockey. He's the uh, it was the NHL supervisor of referees. That was very important. He did a very spectacular job. Uh, quite emotional quite emotional. And yes, it's very important. I can't wait until the award arrives here in Canada, if it can clear customs, because it's gorgeous. Well, and also, I mean, when I say it has to be near the top of the list, you've done a lot of things, but the whistle you invented is now basically used by every official in every sport in every country. In the world. That's and that. That's a cool thing to have. I, was, I wanted to have, when Paul McCartney was in town, I wanted to have him on the show and I wanted to ask him one question. I could have done the interview in one question. If I had to, I would have like six hours. Yeah. I wanted to know what it was like to stand up on stage and have the entire audience, no matter how big it was, sing your song back to you. I think that would be the coolest thing in the world to experience. It has to be similar when you are hearing the people, referees everywhere, blowing the Fox 40 whistle, which you invented, no matter where you are. I'm a proud, proud Canadian, and we make our whistle in Canada. It's almost 30 years. And yes, a tear comes to my eye. I went wherever I go, whatever country, we service 140 countries made in Canada, and I turn on the TV. I can be in a public place like Gage Park, <laughs> if there's a TV. <laughs> Watch out, I, Pokemon. Chasing Pokemon. <laughs> and, and I hear that sound, and uh, I usually turn to whoever I'm with with a little bit of a tear. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very humbling feeling that everywhere in you, the, the world you go, they blow a, a, a Canadian maid. You hear one of your own kids. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank That's you. wonderful. That is that Thank is outstanding. You. Let me give you the uh, the quiz question one more time. Let's wrap this up uh, for the week. 33 years ago this week, in fact, 33 years ago yesterday, a New York Yankees outfielder threw a baseball that obliterated a seagull at Exhibition Stadium. Now, I told you, he went in the Hall of Fame. He eventually played for the Blue Jays. He had played for the San Diego Padres before... Joining the Yankees, he went to University of Minnesota where he was a football, basketball, and baseball star, but chose baseball to play there. Your question tonight was, who was that guy? The answer, Dave Winfield. Winfield wants noise. Remember that from Toronto when the Blue Jays won their first World Series? Jacob, who got this right tonight? It's a laundry list. There was a 75% success rate on this one. Excellent. Well, I'm glad to know that. So we got Dave, Karen, Jerry, Wendy, Rob Gatto, and Marie, Roger, 
Rick, Rennie, Philip Jackson, Peter, Joanne, Gino, Lloyd, Howard, and Alice. Well done, folks. I figured some of you would remember the dead seagull. Almost as impressive, and if you really want to see a dead seagull, and I never thought I would say that on the air, but if you really want to see a seagull get blown up, go type in Randy Johnson seagull and watch the clip of when a guy throws a 100-mile-an-hour fastball and a seagull flies right through the strike zone at the exact moment the ball arrives and is defeathered instantly. Boom. There's what you can watch as we send you into your weekend. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. I'll be back Monday at 7. I hope you will join me then. Until then, have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Terry, Ron, thanks for doing this. Thanks a million. Thanks, Scott. Talk to you soon. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.